Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of In a Nutshell, the plant-based health professionals podcast. We're delighted that you're here. Hello Claire, how are you today? I'm good, but I want to hear all about how relaxed you are after your time off. Yes, I've had a couple of weeks off work now, so I'm, I'm very nice and relaxed. Thank you. How about yourself? Yep, good. But I'm the right side of the holidays. I sent you the interview with Dr. Alan Desmond uh, to have a listen to, who's plant-based royalty. What did you think? Oh, it was fantastic, Claire. What an amazing guest to have on the podcast. And I was really gutted to have missed him, actually. He's a fantastic speaker and so knowledgeable. Well, the good news is he has agreed to come back and do some deep dives. You know, at the very least, we're going to talk about bowel cancer. Brill. Yeah, no, definitely. I think we'll, we'll be really pleased to have him. And so inspiring as well. It was really lovely to hear you know, everything he was mentioning about his own journey, but also all his colleagues and how the world seems to be changing. And he he mentioned in the conference that he was at and they were serving more plant-based foods. In terms of my learning points, I I was really pleased that you went into processed foods a bit with him and the difference between processed foods and ultra-processed foods and additives. You know, we're hearing more and more about avoiding ultra-processed foods and the importance with regards to our gut microbiome. So I really found it useful that he was very specific about what to avoid and looking at the food labels with regards emulsifiers and maltodextrin. So I'm going to try and read labels a bit better, I think, and reduce or eliminate them where possible. Um, It's not always possible, but certainly something to look out for. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think I'm I'm whole food plant-based most of the time, but I enjoy some processed foods some some junk foods and um there's a task ahead isn't there to sort of look at the labels and decide what you're going to include and what you're going to try and cut out from here yeah absolutely I mean as an example the one that got me the most was we we do sometimes eat wraps and you know Mm. I looked at the back of the packet of that and you know it's whole grain and it looks fine but actually it's got lots of additives in it and emulsifiers So I've managed to find a different brand now that doesn't and hopefully it'll be just as delicious. Mm. Um, But it's having that knowledge, isn't it, to make those small steps, but still having the wraps, but in a different uh, different brand. Mm. Well, so we did talk about avoiding bowel cancer and other cancers. They're very just in that overview with Alan. But of course, cancer is very much on the minds of plant-based health professionals this month because we're running up to VegMed on the 9th and 10th of September. And I know you've been looking at the programme, Daisy, and deciding what you're going to go to. There's there's a session um, on cancer and lifestyle, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, there is. I can't believe Ed, VegMed's around the corner now. It's really exciting. Um, and tickets are still available for another week. The programme looks excellent. I'm particularly interested in the talk about autoimmune disease and rheumatic disease and how plant-based diets can help with those, because that's not something I'm very aware of. Yeah, would like to attend that, but I also want to go to the Planetary Health Talk, um, which is happening at the same time, I think. So I think we're yeah. going to have to trade notes on that one. That's a good idea. You go to one and I'll go to the other and we'll, we'll learn from each other. Anyway, let's go to the interview. Brilliant. Okay, so I'm super excited to introduce Dr. Alan Desmond. He's a consultant gastroenterologist with a special interest in the role of diet in the prevention and treatment of digestive disease. He is the author of The Plant-Based Diet Revolution. He posts a wealth of knowledge on Instagram and has around 135,000 followers. 
but since he is also an ambassador for PBHP UK, we are very pleased he is joining us for this episode. So Alan, welcome to In A Nutshell. Hey Claire, thanks for having me on. Thanks for taking time to talk about gut health, such an important issue. And first of all, before we go on, congratulations on the podcast. It's doing great. Um, I've really been enjoying it and it's um, it's a real honour to be on it as a guest. Oh, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. Um, shall we go to the first question then, which is basically, we know that medicine is an environment that has not traditionally taught us that diet beyond the basics, so we shouldn't have too much sugar, saturated fat, can influence our health. So tell us what it was that convinced you of the benefits of going plant-based. Well, as a, very early on in my career, Claire, when I decided that I wanted to do gastroenterology as a specialty, so when I was a senior house officer and a registrar working in gastroenterology, I realised very, very quickly that every single patient, almost to a fault, almost every single patient with a GI disorder, whether that's gallstones, duodenal ulcer, diverticular disease, colon polyps, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, or any of the GI problems that fill up our GP waiting rooms and gastroenterology clinics and endoscopy suites, that whenever you spoke to a patient and you explained the diagnosis, the medications, the prognosis, the need for scans, the need for surgery, the need for drugs. Almost every single patient turns to you and asks, well, what should I eat? Or what about food? Or is there any food I should eat or any food I should avoid? Because luckily for gastroenterologists, our patients make that connection very quickly because they've got um, GI issues or tummy problems. They make a line very, very directly between food and improving their GI problem. And that's when a patient asks you that question, it's an incredible opportunity um, to help to improve the prognosis. Because not only is the patient asking you, what can I eat to feel better today? They're really asking, what can I eat or avoid in order to improve my prognosis? So I spend less time in hospital. So I need fewer immune suppressant drugs. So I'm less likely to grow another colonic polyp. So I'm less likely to have a recurrence of the colon cancer that I've just been treated for. And as even as a young doctor, I really wanted to give my patients evidence-based answers to those questions. So very early on, as in SHO, even in, you know, 2006, 2007, very early in my career, um, I guess as a registrar, but by 2006, 2007, actually, um, even at that point, I was reading the medical journals, the same journals and textbooks that you read as a trainee specialist or someone who's aspiring to be a gastroenterologist. And of course, I would read all the papers about the latest endoscopic techniques and the surgery and all the incredible new drugs and the biologic drugs that were being developed in inflammatory bowel disease and all those really exciting developments that made gastroenterology such an exciting specialty to work in. But I would also look at the papers about diet and lifestyle. And when it comes to food, when you look at all the studies and all of these digestive health conditions, when it comes to prevention, when it comes to improving prognosis and safeguarding our digestive health for the future, you see two very strong themes emerging in the literature. Number one, avoid junk food. Eat whole food. Eat unprocessed food. Eat food that is 
Um, not ultra-processed junk food, the kind of stuff that makes up 60% of calories consumed in the UK right now. It's aim for food that you have bought at the supermarket or the farmer's market or wherever that looks pretty close to its original form. And then you take it home and you cook it and eat it. Whole food. And the second message that you see very clearly is get as much of your food as possible from plant-based sources fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, etc., etc., because these, this combination of whole foods, predominantly or exclusively plant-based, ticks all the right boxes for excellent gut health, excellent bowel health, regular bowel movements, a healthier gut microbiome, and significant reductions in numerous diseases that absolutely fill our hospitals and units. So I guess then as a consultant gastroenterologist in 2012, and a few years after that, um, once I became involved with plant-based health professionals, um, my confidence in speaking to my patients about this and because the amount of education that I've given myself um, very gladly led me to the point where I was seeing some really remarkable turnarounds in digestive health in my patients, whether they had, you know, minor problems like constipation or more serious problems like inflammatory bowel disease, some really, really dramatic transformations that I just had never seen using the prescription pad alone. And for anyone who's listening to this and thinking, well, does switching from a standard British diet, so standard British diet, to a healthy whole food plant-based diet make a significant difference, it makes a huge difference. And the statistics just in terms of prevention, for example, shows that people who eat a healthy plant-based diet compared to people who eat a standard British diet are 80%, may have, may have an up to 80% reduction in developing GI cancers, about a 50% reduction in risk of developing Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, substantially reduced risk of being admitted to hospital for any reason. As part of a healthy diet and lifestyle, up to a 90% reduced risk of developing myocardial infarction, 60% reduced risk of type 2 diabetes, dramatically reduced risk of hypercholesterolemia, high blood pressure. So it makes a difference. It very much makes a difference. And when you start to implement this in your clinical practice and you start to educate, motivate and support your patients to make this change, you suddenly find out how medicine really works and you find out just like Hippocrates taught that food is medicine and it makes a huge difference and that's why I'm proud to be an ambassador for plant-based health professionals and that we're on this incredible mission to educate our fellow health professionals, members of the public, policy members, etc., on how much food matters and how much we can do to improve, improve our health, the health for families, the health for patients. Thank you. That was an absolutely brilliant overview. I'm going to just put a bit of a challenge in there mm. and say that, you know, you are 100% plant-based. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So uh, in, in 2016, yeah. having looked at all the evidence and it, it, you know what it's like, once you, when, once you know, you know. Once you hear all of those statistics and you realise that, that, you know, for example, people who don't eat meat and eat a plant-based diet are up to 80% less likely to develop GI cancers. 
And when in your day-to-day work, you talk, you meet people all the time with GI cancers and you, you, you function and work very much at the sharp end of healthcare, um, it, it, become, it becomes very logical to you that look, rather than moderating, and I don't want to go for moderately good results here, um, I want to, um, I'm going to go uh, cold tofu. I'm going to go the whole way here. And, uh, you know, it's wonderful. Dr. Kim Williams says, you know, the, the, the cardiologist, the former um, uh, president of the American um, Heart Association, so previously the most senior cardiologist in the United States, as he previously said, um, I don't mind dying. I just don't want it to be my fault. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I don't mind getting yeah. I don't mind getting diverticular disease, and you know, low <laughs> risk is not no risk, but I definitely don't want to contribute towards my own risk. Um, it kind of comes back to that uh, basic tenant of practicing medicine, doesn't it? Uh, primum non nocere, so do no harm. Yeah. I apply that to myself as well, Claire. I was listening to something uh, the other day where there was an expert saying, well, you know, you can get almost all the benefits from going 70 to 80% plant-based. I mean, what would you say to that? You can get almost all the benefits, but when all the benefits are up for grabs, why not aim for that? It's, I, I think we, there's a temptation within medicine to want to get people to aim for moderately good, okay? So, for example, um, in the UK, all the time, we talk about getting your five a day. So we want people to get their five fruits and vegetables per day. But, of course, the evidence tells us that five a day should be regarded as the absolute minimum level of consumption. So because so many people in the UK, perhaps 90%, aren't even getting to that level, that's the public health message. But research tells us time and time again that if we give people a target when it comes to food, they seldom meet it. So by telling people to eat five portions of fruit per day, we're going to be lucky if people get two or three portions per day. So I think we need to stop soft peddling the evidence on this because we know that the benefits of servings of fruits and vegetables don't stop at five. They don't stop at 10. They don't stop at 12. They probably don't stop at 15. So I think we need to be very clear when we're talking about this publicly is we need to tell people the truth. So diets without meat are deliver an 80% reduction in risk of GI cancers. So some say, well, what if I want to eat some meat? They're like, okay, that's fine. But you're not going to get all of the benefits. What if I want to have bacon once a week? Okay, that's fine. But just remember that no matter how seldom you consume bacon. So let's say you have a bacon butty once a month. Just remember that beans are still going to be a healthier choice on that given day. So that's the evidence. And I think we need to be very, very clear on that. But of course, that doesn't mean that we live in some crazy fantasy land where we expect that everybody is going to have the educational resources, the family support, the, you know, the ability to shop for themselves, the know-how to implement this effectively, because it's going to be a real struggle for people. So we need to be very clear on the evidence, but then we need to educate, motivate, and support our patients in order to stay on track. You know, I was listening to an interview with the wonderful US researcher from Stanford, Christopher Gardner, just yesterday. And he was talking about a, you know, a landmark study that he did a number of years ago, the Diet Fits study, 
where they um, compared the efficacy of the Ornish diet versus the Zone diet versus the um, Atkins diet, okay? So they put people on each of these diets for a year. Their, their primary outcome was weight loss. And basically what they found after a year was that everybody lost weight. There wasn't any major difference between them. So you go, oh, that doesn't quite make sense. So what, why is that? Why is that that everybody, were, you know, we gave these radically different approaches? Because what they did was they got the books for each of those diets. Then they had a dietitian read the book to the patient or the study participant. And that was the end of the intervention. They said, now go off and do that. And what the evidence showed them is that people didn't do it. They, they just weren't motivated. They weren't educated and they weren't supported. So if you want to get these sort... And so by the end of that study, Claire, the reason that there was no difference between the results is because genuinely at the end of the, of the study, after 12 months, nobody was doing Atkins, nobody was doing Zone, and nobody was doing the Ornish diet. They'd all just made various tweaks to their baseline diet. So everyone was kind of doing the same thing. Um, so we need to deliver ongoing support. And look, at the moment in the UK, when it comes to the consumption of animal products in particular, so you know, rather than just, it's very important that we focus on including fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, et cetera. That's super important. But it's also important that we speak very honestly about reductions in animal product consumption as part of that. It's a whole food plant-based diet. So plant-based is really important. So the evidence um, on human health tells us that the safe level of consumption for bacon, sausages and processed meat is zero. These are group one carcinogens, which are responsible for 640,000 deaths globally every single year. And they're on no um, healthy um, eating guide. You know, if you look at the, you know, the Canadian Healthy Eating Plate, the Eat Lancet report, uh, Healthy Eating Guidelines, bacon does not feature, sausages do not feature. The safe level of consumption of bacon is zero. The UK level of consumption is 25 grams per day per adult. When it comes to red meat, so our beef and lamb and all the rest of it and pork, the safe level of consumption is probably zero, but because it's difficult to demonstrate harm at low levels of consumption, we say, okay, you can probably have between 7 and 14 grams per day, which would be one relatively small serving uh, per week or every two weeks, right? But like I said earlier, on that given day, having beans is still healthier than having beef. So safe level of consumption, about 7, 14 grams per day. Current UK level of consumption, 75 grams per day. 75 grams per day, so 5 to 10 times the upper limit of safety. When it comes to poultry, so chicken predominantly, but other forms of poultry as well, we know that the safe level of consumption, so that we don't increase our risk of heart disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, but also increase our risk of hospitalization with duodenal ulcer, duodenitis, gastritis, and, and gallbladder disease, the safest level of consumption is probably about 30 grams per day, um, maybe 60 grams per day. But again, on that day when you decide to have that poultry, beans and tofu and plant-based sources of protein and, of, and sources of iron are still going to be a healthier choice on that given day. But if we say the safe level of consumption, the maximum is about 30 to 60 grams per day, the UK level of consumption right now is 230 grams per person per day. 
So that's about seven times, maybe three to seven times uh, or four to seven times the upper limit of safety. So in the UK right now, people are consuming about 85 kilograms of meat per person per year. We are consuming way more than the safe level of consumption. And it's arguable that the safest level of consumption is close to zero, particularly for red meat and almost definitely for processed meat. So when it comes to meat consumption, the UK and high income countries in general are flying way too close to the sun, way too close to the sun. So our pub, the way we speak to the public and the way that we speak to our colleagues and the way we speak to our patients about this needs to be understanding and kind and supportive but it's also got to be very, very clear. We, we, we've got to be very, very clear that re- the consumption needs to come way down. It's not about moderating. It, it's about really flipping this thing on its head. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned not just about how we speak to patients, um, but also how we speak to colleagues. And I've heard you say that there are two types of gastroenterologists plant-based and those that haven't read the evidence. So can you say more about how that's going in your field? Well, of course, that's, of course, I'm borrowing that phrase from the great Dr. Kim Williams, uh, who said there are two kinds of cardiologists, the vegans and those who haven't read, read the data. I think he said that back in about 2016. And of course, he was right. And within about three years, the American Heart Association had revised its um, dietary guidelines for the prevention of heart disease Um, indicating that a varied vegetarian diet would be the preferable preferable diet. So a whole food or vegetarian, kind of Mediterranean style, vegetable-based diet being the best. And as you know, the the American Heart Association's presidential advisory um, that was issued, I think, last year, um, is quite clear that that vegan and vegetarian diets meet all the requirements of the uh, 10 different dietary uh, changes that are recommended for substantially reducing one's risk of heart disease. So Kim Williams, that's Kim Williams' phrase, which I repurposed. And when I first met Kim, actually, at a plant-based health professionals event in London a few years ago, I I told him that. I said, it's two kinds of gastroenterologists as well, Kim. So how's it going? I think it's going well, actually. And I'll tell you a story that really um, shows you how this is entering the mainstream. So every year, um, Claire, I go to the British Society of Gastroenterology meeting. So this is the annual conference for British gastroenterologists. It also attracts um, international attendees. It's a very big conference at the XL in London. It's wonderful. So literally, it's a great place to be if you're a gut health nerd, because you are surrounded by thousands of other gut health nerds from around the country and elsewhere, and you get to go deep on gut health, which is fantastic. So in the past number of years, not only are we seeing more and more talks and more speakers talking about um, the benefits of plant-based eating, but this year at the conference a few months ago, every day at the conference catering, there were three meal options. So as you know, at these big conferences, there's big catering companies involved because there's a lot of people to feed and there's a big buffet lunch um, every day and a buffet breakfast every day. On each day of the, I think it's a five-day conference, um, there was two, there was three options and two of the three options were completely plant-based. 
And not only were they completely plant-based, they were healthy plant-based. They were whole food plant-based options. So historically, at a conference like that, I would have to bring my own food or I'd have to nip out somewhere to get something to eat or I'd have to go and annoy the uh, catering staff to get something healthy to eat. But this year, I didn't have any problem because there was healthy plant-based options available for all of the delegates each day. And on one day of the conference, there was no meat and dairy on the menu whatsoever. It was a completely whole food plant-based conference. So I think that's a really interesting indicator of where the medical fraternity and the gastroenterology uh, fraternity and sorority are moving on food. And I had the opportunity um, during that conference to pose a question during one of the main plenary sessions. We'd had a very interesting talk on cancer epidemiology. We'd had a very interesting talk on reducing the climate impact of our medical practices. And both speakers had highlighted the negative, particularly the negative impacts of, of red and processed meat in terms of cancer risk, health and environmental impact. So I was able to pose a question to the president of the society and to all the attendees at this plenary session, probably about 1,500 gastroenterologists. Isn't it time that we get these red and processed meats in particular off of our GI units across the UK? Why is it that you can still walk onto a gastroenterology ward and order a sausage sandwich or lamb casserole when we all know this and when this food isn't even being served at the conference? Surely the food that's good enough for us should be good enough for our patients as well. And if I had walked into a conference five years ago, and I know because I would ask questions like this five or six years ago, it would generally be met with a ripple of discontent and a few sighs and the microphone would switch off. <laughs> but this year at the conference, I got a very positive response. And, you know, there was a little round of applause and everybody agreed. And, you know, people, so I think that the, um, the pendulum is swinging, really. It is changing. Attitudes towards this is changing. And people are getting more and more evidence, more and more aware of all of the evidence that drove me to make the change for my patients and for me. And to be quite honest, I think the, um, the evidence around the climate impact is also becoming a real driver of that. So as you know, um, there's a big drive within uh, GP practice, so within hospital practice and everything we do within the NHS um, to ensure that what we're doing is also compatible with reducing our impact on climate change and helping to address the climate emergency. And I think that's been a very powerful lever within medical practice as well. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And it's so heartening to hear that the gastroenterologists seem to be taking this seriously, um, because I think it's much more common, certainly amongst my the people that I see and talk to about plant-based diets, it's that they say, if it's so simple, doctor, why are the vast majority of health professionals not plant-based? And um, I find that difficult to explain sometimes. I mean, how close do you think we are to hearing this sort of across the NHS? And is there anything we could really do more of as a group? I think it, I think it is getting closer. I think the um, the conversations are happening, and certainly I've had approaches from a number of very senior decision makers within the NHS who are looking at how we can make this part of our NHS practice, how we can maybe follow the lead that Eric Adams, Mayor Eric Adams, has shown in New York City. So people may already know about this listening to the podcast, but. If you are in New York City now and you're hospitalized in one of New York's, um, I think, 13 public hospitals, 
the menu that you'll be given is a healthy plant-based menu. So there are animal products and meat products available um, for people who'd like to request them, but they've become the non-default option. So the uh, New York's public hospitals have gone plant-based. Why have they gone plant-based? Because they know that this is a super healthy way to eat, and they are very much aware of all of the evidence showing that people who make the switch to a plant-based diet substantially improve their their health and their prognosis and their future health and are going to spend less time in hospital and they're going to cost um, the healthcare system less money. They're going to consume fewer medications. They're going to be less likely to end up in the cath lab having coronary artery stents. They're going to be less likely to end up in the oncology suite having chemotherapy for bowel cancer. So it's an investment that pays back over time, uh, you know, very much. And it's certainly worth making that investment. So I think if big public health systems like those in New York can make that change, that it can't be that difficult. It really isn't rocket science for us to look at the food that is served within the NHS. But the NHS moves slowly. And I think that's why it's really important for all of us who are aware of the evidence to be very open and very clear and very passionate and be enthusiastic, positive um, helpful advocates for this. Yeah, I mean, to the right people, um, if you've got an individual in front of you, I can do something as an NHS professional, like recommend them your book, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution. So what do you hope people will take from your book? Oh, well, gosh, that, that's a big question. So, um, so the book that I wrote is called The Plant-Based Diet Revolution, and it really was such a lovely opportunity that came up to write a book. Um, I think after I'd done a podcast, um, I was contacted by publishers and they said, hey, you you make a lot of sense. We'd like like you to write a book. So the, the, the main message of the book is that food matters and our diet and lifestyle matter. And by leading a healthy diet and lifestyle and by eating more plant-based meals and by building your meals around fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, and all of those healthy foods, not only can you enjoy super tasty meals that leave you feeling great and energized and happy, not only can you achieve uh, healthier bowel movements and have a, a more positive bathroom experience, but you can also add healthy years to your life. So we know, Claire, that a healthy diet and lifestyle extends, in the, this is UK data, so we know that people who have a healthy diet and lifestyle, so they don't smoke, they minimize their alcohol intake, they maintain a healthy body weight, they exercise regularly, and they eat a high fiber, predominantly plant-based diet or exclusively plant-based diet. We know that individuals who tick all of those boxes add about 10 years of healthy life expectancy to their time on this earth. So 10 extra healthy years, 10 years of thriving to their life expectancy, 10 years of not drawing on NHS resources because they are so healthy. Now, who doesn't want an extra 10 years of healthy life? So that could be the difference between seeing your grandchildren finish primary school and being there when your grandchildren graduate from university or start their first business or have their first child. Who doesn't want that? And we talked earlier 
about whether we should soft pedal the data and say, yeah, just make some moderate changes and you'll be right. You're not going to get there with moderate changes. We need to be very clear that the changes that you need to make are pretty significant uh, for many people in the UK. So if we talk about those healthy habits, healthy diet, avoiding excess alcohol, maintaining a healthy body weight, exercising regularly and not smoking, those are very simple things. Those are very simple and easily understood propositions. But unfortunately, due to our standard Western diet and lifestyle, these very, very simple behaviors have become very, very difficult to achieve. So I hope that the book, well, I know that the book does this because what the book does is it makes the diet, the food aspect of it, super simple. It explains the science, the gut microbiome science, why a plant-based diet is so good for gut health, brain health, heart health, and body health, but then also gives people the recipes and meal plans they need. So it's a very, very practical book that will guide people through the food side of things. And, you know, so many of my patients and people who've um, enjoyed the book have told me that once they've made that switch to a plant-based diet and they realize what difference the food that they choose to consume three times a day makes their overall health, then suddenly becomes a no-brainer for them. You know, they suddenly um, start looking at their alcohol consumption. You know, if they smoke, they look at their cigarettes and stop smoking cigarettes. If they're not physically active, they start looking at that because now, now their mind is open and now they're able to consider um, those daily habits that can add health and happiness to their lives. Yeah, it is a lovely book and I use it and I'm happy to recommend it. One of the things you mentioned was about the the Western diet. And of course, we know that on a, on a bigger level, we always talk about the Western diet lacking in fibre. Mm. Um, but drilling down a bit, can you give us a bit of an understanding about fibre and what are the different types and why it is that when you think about the weight of 30 grams and that being the target, why is it so difficult to achieve that and why are only one in 10 people in the UK managing that? Yeah, so, so fibre is a, uh, a difficult topic really to get into real detail about. I suppose if we try to make it really simple, um, fiber is a structural carbohydrate um, found in plants. So we can only get our dietary fiber from fruits, vegetables, uh, legumes, whole grains, nuts and seeds, leafy greens, and all of those delicious plant-based sources of food. We typically um, kind of thought about fiber as roughage. So maybe 40 years ago, we thought about fiber as roughage. If we didn't get enough fiber, we would get constipated. So this guideline was set like, oh, you need to consume at least 30 grams of fiber per day um, to avoid constipation. But of course, what we know is that the importance of consuming enough fiber um, in our diet goes way beyond avoiding constipation. Of course, that's a very, um, I mean, that's an excellent goal to have um, to avoid constipation. But back in the 1970s, from the uh, incredibly important work of Dr. Dennis Burkett, um, so people can look up Dr. Dennis Burkett. Um, Dr. Burkett um, was an Irish trained uh, UK surgeon who uh, spent time working in the UK and in rural Africa. And what he noted was that when he was living and working as a young surgeon in rural Africa, although rural Africans certainly had their health challenges, um, he didn't have to get out of bed at, 
at bed at two o'clock in the morning, Claire, to deal with a diverticular perforation or to deal with an obstructing bowel cancer or to deal with a bout of acute appendicitis when he was in rural Africa. Um, But these were the things that kept him out of his bed at night when he was in the UK. And that led him to do some really important epidemiological work and to develop the so-called fiber hypothesis of health. And his paper, which I think was published in 1974 um, on diseases of Western civilization, was a real landmark for public health and dietetics and medicine. Because it put forward this theory that the plant deficiency, the fiber deficiency that came in post-war Europe and post-war the United States as people in these high-income countries began to refocus their dietary intakes on fiber-free foods like meat, dairy, and processed foods, largely driven by the food industry, that this fiber-deficient approach to food was largely responsible for soaring rates of heart disease, cancer, um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, um, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, diverticular disease, etc. And so that theory was put forward about 40 years ago, and more, sorry, 50 years ago. And Dr. Burkett's theories have absolutely stood the test of time. And I talked about some of the gut health statistics in terms of GI diseases at the very start of this conversation. But Dr. Burkett had talked about making sure that you were getting your soluble fiber um, to help keep your gut healthy and your insoluble fiber to help to prevent constipation. But of course, the, the whole concept of soluble versus insoluble fiber is more academic than pragmatic. Because if you're eating a healthy plant-based diet with fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds, you are going to be getting both soluble and insoluble fiber and everything in between. So not only are you getting um, all these lovely plant-based sources with all of the um, protein and vitamin A and vitamin C and uh, vitamin E and phytonutrients and antioxidants and healthy non-heme iron and all of these wonderful things uh, that explain why people who eat a healthy plant-based diet are so healthy. But you are also getting a huge variety of plants in your diet. You're getting a huge variety of fibers and what we refer to as microbiome available carbohydrates. So you are helping to build a really healthy gut microbiome, these trillions of microbes that reside predominantly in our large bowel, our colon. And when we eat a diet that is built with a huge variety of whole grains, fruits, and vegetables, we are building a really, really healthy gut microbiome, which is so important because we've learned in the last 15 or 20 years, to quote the uh, Sonnenbergs, that our gut microbiome is in many ways a control center for human biology. And by building a healthy gut microbiome, we are building a gut microbiome that is not conducive to chronic inflammation, um, which is a main unifying uh, driver of so many chronic diseases, that we are promoting healthy cell metabolism, healthy genetic regulation, that we are uh, helping promote a healthy um, immune system, that we are improving our gut health, our mucosal health, our mucosal defenses, and we are building a gut microbiome that produces healthy short-chain fatty acids and vitamins and antioxidants and doesn't produce secondary bile acids and hydrogen sulfide gas and all of these other postbiotic substances that are generally have negative impacts on human health. So the fiber 
consumption piece is really, really important. And we could do another two hours on the importance of dietary fiber and the importance of plant diversity within our diet. But the reason that it's become difficult to achieve that is sadly because of the industrialization of our food system. The standard global diet, the used to be called the standard American diet, standard British diet, standard Western diet, is a diet that is made up predominant that most of our calories are coming from ultra-processed foods, meat and dairy. The fruits, the vegetables, the whole grains, the legumes, the nuts and seeds barely feature on average dietary intakes. And those are the foods that contain dietary fiber. So when I'm speaking to my patients at clinic and I want to address their fiber deficiency or find out if they have fiber deficiency, and this is something that any practitioner can do in their clinic, is I start very simply. I will just ask the patient, because we're all limited for time, Claire, God knows, you know, um, certainly my NHS practice, I, I wish I had three times as much time to spend with my patients. I simply ask the patient, how many pieces of fruit do you eat every day? Banana, apple, orange, you know, bowl of strawberries, bowl of blueberries. How many servings of vegetables do you eat every day? Where a serving would be about three tablespoons. And how many servings of whole grains do you eat every day? So again, that's about three big tablespoons of oats, uh, quinoa, you know, whole grain pasta, brown rice, etc. And if they answer, I have three pieces of fruit, three servings of vegetables, and three servings of whole grains every day, then that's a very um, kind of um, back of a tofu pack calculation of their dietary intakes. And if they're hitting all, all three of those domains and their total servings are nine, then they are not fiber deficient, most likely. They are probably just about getting their 30 grams of fiber per day. But of course, we know the epidemiological data tells us in clinical practice, if you start asking patients these questions as well, you will find out that patients are very, very often through no fault of their own, very unaware of the incredible health benefits of those foods. And very often people would say, okay, yeah, I probably have one piece of fruit every day. I try to have an apple. I love vegetables. And these are genuine answers that I've had at clinic. I love vegetables. I have them every weekend with my roast dinner. And then when you ask patients about whole grains, they will say, oh, what do you mean a whole grain? I love that bread with the seeds, you know, the seedy bread at Sainsbury's. I, I, I eat that. And that's, you know, that sounds a little bit funny. But of course, it's not, it, it's not funny. It's devastating because people largely have had no guidance on the importance of eating these healthy fiber containing foods. So if you can just take a few minutes with your patient to ask them those three questions, you will have identified the first target for healthy dietary change. And often that first conversation with the patient about getting them towards their fiber goals will be, okay, well, if you said you like apples, do you like bananas and oranges? Great. Could you eat a banana, an apple, and an orange every day? Great. You said that you have pasta three times a week. Could you switch that out for whole grain pasta? And could you get whole grain bread? Great. I want you to try and hit that two or three times a day. That's it. That's all we're doing today. I'll see you in six weeks. Okay. And those conversations and that support 
and demonstrating to our patients that this matters to me. I'm your doctor and this matters to me. It should matter to you as well. So let's do this together. Can start some incredibly powerful conversations, Claire. And if you can, if we could get every person in the UK to sit down and have that conversation with a health, with a supportive individual, an understanding individual who's going to help educate, motivate, and support them in making those changes, we could dramatically improve the health of the population and probably reduce the incidence of numerous chronic diseases and cancers by seventy to eighty percent. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things that always comes up with fibre, isn't it, is about processing of food. And we're talking about this so much at the moment where people are trying to navigate that line between the whole food diet and the fact that when you eat out or some of the things you might use at home, they will be processed to some extent. Um, Now, Daisy in particular had a question about what's coming up with you know soya milk and things like that should we be going as far as making our own what does it mean when things are added there in fact you know we also had um a question in from a listener pam who was concerned about the fact that she really likes eating greek yogurt but she wants to go on that plant-based journey Mm. she's looked at some of the the plant-based options Mm. for that type of yogurt and they've got so many things like guar. She, she was asking about guar gum is added. Is that is that a bad choice? What, what's your take on that? Yeah. So first of all, we need to be um, absolutely clear because I think sometimes we that there is this fallacy um, that is promulgated that a vegan diet equals a junk food diet. Um, let's be clear: the standard British diet is a junk food diet. Sixty percent of calories are coming from junk food in the UK. So before plant-based diets um, you know, became really popular in the UK in the last six or seven years, we already had a junk food problem, okay? The, the, the vegans didn't invent this. This has been around for a long time. So there's that, number one. Number two, ultra-processed foods should be minimized. But of course, it's important to recognize what is an ultra-processed food versus a processed food. So lightly processing foods is a good thing. It can, it can increase the bioavailability of nutrients. Cooking your food is a form of processing. Of course, I w- you know, we, we need to cook our beans. Nobody should eat raw beans. Cooking our leafy greens, cooking our whole grains actually increases um, many of the bioavailable nutrients within those foods. So a healthy plant-based diet includes cooked food, uh, processed foods like hummuses and tofu and fermented foods. Fermenting is a form of processing. So tofu, excuse me, tempeh, sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha. These are all processed foods, which are really healthy, delicious, and form a really important part of a healthy plant-based diet. What we need to be um, cautious of is the ultra-processed foods. So ultra-processed foods are foods that are cheap to produce and they are shelf-stable and the food industry absolutely loves them. And they're also designed to be sweet, salty, oily, and crunchy. So generally, perfectly designed for our monkey brains that still believe that we are living in a time of caloric scarcity. And if we can find something that's sweet and oily or salty, that we should eat tons of it and we shouldn't stop eating it. And more than that, the foods are engineered for consumption. So the ultra-processed foods. So what am I talking about? 
I'm talking about the foods that you walk into the supermarket and they're generally um, ambient products. So they're not refrigerated. The reason they're not refrigerated is because they have an expiry date in 2029 or 2030 because they are so devoid of natural ingredients that they are, they are just never going to decay. So we're talking about Mars bars and candy bars and highly processed cookies. We're talking about pepperami. We're talking about, you know, big bags of crisps. We're talking about chicken McNuggets. We're talking about highly processed, ultra-processed junk foods, also known as junk. No business in the human digestive system. Um, no historical benefit in terms of caloric intakes, etc. So that's junk food. When it comes to avoiding certain additives and chemicals that might be added to relatively uh, modestly uh, processed foods, and like I mentioned earlier, and the things that we need to look out for, I think there's a fairly short list, really. So I'm not going to talk about like added oils and added salts and everything. I'm going to, I'm going to take that as red. But when we're talking about junk food ingredients, um, the things that I really um, advise my patients to avoid are emulsifiers. So if you pick up a processed food or an OT bar or whatever it is, um, and if you see that it's got emulsifiers or lecithins, Listed as an ingredient, it'll usually say emulsifier, then best avoided or minimized. If it says maltodextrin, which is an artificial carbohydrate, which is made in factories, white powder added to food to improve its uh, texture and flavor, if you can, avoid it. Maltodextrin, not, not good for your digestive health. And then, so that's your emulsifiers and your maltodextrins. Those Two classes and, multi, uh, and emulsifiers can include lecithins, polysorbates, carrageenan, carboxymethylcellulose, but it'll generally say emulsifier. Try if you can avoid those. And then when it um, and then maltodextrin. When it comes to things like um, plant gums, like guar gum and pectin, those um, may actually be uh, beneficial for your gut health and maybe beneficial for your gut microbiome. But of course, you, 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 can, get, you can get them from eating fruits. So you, you don't need to buy a processed food. But if, if I, for example, picked up um, a, a plant-based milk or like a soya milk or something, and if I saw that it had guar gum added or a little bit of oil added to it, like a plant-derived oil, which is going to be a good source of polyunsaturated fatty acids, I... I that's fine. I, I would say, okay, that's fine. That, that's okay. Um, but if I saw maltodextrin or emulsifiers, I would put it back on the shelf. And, you know, if you know that, it, it, it really does change the way you shop. So I'll give you an example. In my house, we've got three kids. There's me, my wife, three kids. We're all vegan and we do our best to eat healthy plant-based. Of course, we also live in the real world. Okay, that's a whole other conversation. Um, so I popped into Sainsbury's on the way home yesterday and one of the things that I wanted to get was some bread. So, you know, we'll often bake our own, make nice flatbreads, etc. But obviously, we live in the real world. Um, I'm a full-time doctor. My wife works. We're busy. We need some quick bread. So I just stood in the bread aisle at Sainsbury's, and I had two products, which the wrapping was almost identical. So in my left hand, I've got um, Sainsbury's. And this could be any shop, okay? I'm, I'm sorry. I just we shop at Sainsbury's, okay? So this could be any shop. So on my left hand, I've got whole grain 
flatbreads or um, these um, uh, wraps, okay? Whole grain wraps, big round flat wraps, great for making a burrito or whatever. And in my right hand, I've got whole grain f- uh, pita breads, soft pita breads. So they're both whole grain. They're in the same packaging. They look very, very similar. And you might assume that all they've done is one is rolled out really flat and the other one isn't so flat that they're the same product. But you flip them over and you read the ingredients and you see that while the pita bread is made with whole grain flour, yeast, salt, and calcium, the the other bread has a whole bunch of artificial emulsifiers and other ingredients in it, including lecithins. So then it becomes a very simple choice. I'm going to put the, uh, the wraps back and we're going to take this other convenient choice, which is whole grain and doesn't have any emulsifiers in it. So obviously, obviously shopping with me is like a bunch of laughs. <laughs> it takes me a long time to get around the supermarket. But, <laughs> but those are the ingredients that you need to look out for. Right. I mean, that's really clear and really helpful. I might have to listen to that section again, I think, because to, to, it's easy to mix up the good and the bad in there. Um, so you don't have a, a Greek yogurt recipe for Pam then? I mean, oh my goodness. we want um, to make our own. The, the one thing that I noticed is that a lot of the supermarkets um, now have plant-based dairy alternatives. Um, but it's worth So I, I, I'm not really a yogurt um, guy, not a, a Greek yogurt guy. Um, but I do often wander through the aisle, like I said, shopping with me is a barrel of laughs. And I just look at what's in all of these in these products. And there are products on the shelf, which are plant-based yogurts, which are lit. They'll, they'll be in the, in the cool section. They'll be refrigerated. But spend a little bit of time. It's worth investing your time. You will find plant-based yogurts that are basically made from soya milk, water, a little bit of salt, and live cultures. And that's where you want to go. You want to you want to go for these products that are very very basic and have very few ingredients and don't contain the uh, nasties that I mentioned a few minutes ago, particularly the emulsifiers. And I, th- my experience of looking through the aisle is that lots of the products have lots of those ingredients in them, and that's not a vegan issue. That's a food industry issue. The, the food industry has been using these junk food chemicals since the nineteen fifties. But there are products on the shelf that don't contain those um, and are very, very basic fermented foods, um, which use non-dairy sources of protein and fat like soya. Right. I mean, we've talked a lot about avoiding disease today. And I think what what you've done is you've given this brilliant overview that's really motivating for people starting out, you know, what what we should be eating more of and what, what we can avoid. I think we're going to need to get you back to talk about what happens when people have already got disease. Um, So that would be brilliant. But you don't get to go today without telling us what you're having for dinner tonight. Oh, for dinner tonight. Well, yesterday. So we're big um, slow cooker um, fans. So yesterday, my wife made a big... So this happens a lot in our house. So a big slow cooker filled with beans and mushrooms and red peppers and tomato sauce and a little bit of soy for that lovely umaminess. So basically like a big stew, which becomes incredibly versatile because we'll have that for spag ball, um, you know, with, with, with pasta and nutritional yeast. 
And then the next day, I'll get a big chunk of it and I'll put in some sriracha sauce and some chili. And then it becomes a chili and I can have it on a baked potato. So my plan for tonight is to use some of that as a chili. I'll probably have it on a baked potato. There's some sweet potatoes in the fridge. And I've, I've got some um, sprouts in the fridge as well. So I'm going to throw those on top. Maybe a little bit of nutritional yeast, a few chili flakes. I'll see what else. So, so whenever I'm building a meal, and when you make the switch to a healthy plant-based diet, your, your fridge becomes quite exciting because you've got some leftovers, you've got some fresh stuff, you've got some leafy greens, you've got you know seasonings on the shelf. And I, I would even maybe toss um, a teaspoon of flax seeds, ground flax seeds on top of that as well for the omegas. Um, so yeah, so there you go. So like you and like all plant-based doctors at heart, I'm really a foodie. And when it comes to building meals, I'm all about the flavor, but also the plant diversity. Yeah, I'm looking forward to dinner now already. And it's only quarter past 11. I know, <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> but you have to ask me what I'm having for dinner, Alan. Yes. What are you having for dinner tonight, Claire? What's on the menu? Well, you might be familiar with this one. I'm having sticky tofu, courgettes, greens and kimchi. One of my apps. Page one. Page 146. Yeah, one of my absolute <laughs> favourites. And that sticky tofu is epic. Is absolutely epic. Yeah, yeah. No, I've done it before. And there's there's always a bit of, you know, I have to admit, I'm often substituting. So tonight I'm putting the broccoli instead of the greens. Mm. But, you know, it still works really well. And the, the marinade is, is lovely. So yeah, that's so simple. That. So, so that's just, um, you get a really firm tofu, so I like the Tofu Company, T-O-F-O-O. That's a really nice firm tofu, mm. very easy to use for mm. people who aren't familiar with using tofu um, or any extra firm tofu. The nice thing about that particular brand, other brands are available, is that it, it's very dry and firm, so it's, it's very easy to handle. Um, so you're just going to marinate that in a couple of tablespoons of soy sauce with a tablespoon of maple syrup. You're going to move that around, you know, just get that nicely coated in a bowl. And then you're going to get a nice dry pan, medium heat. And you're basically searing it on each side for just a couple of minutes. Delicious. That's brilliant. I think listeners will be so pleased to hear that they don't have to make tofu in an air fryer, um, as Daisy always recommends, because not everyone has one. Mm. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. That was absolutely brilliant. And um, yeah, I, I hope that the rest of the day goes well for you. Oh, thanks, Claire. And looking forward to our next conversation. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, definitely get you back. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We aim to bring you the most up-to-date evidence-based information about the benefits of a plant-based diet, and we'll add all the links for further reading in the show notes. Please remember that everything discussed on here does not constitute individual medical advice, so please consult your healthcare provider if you have any medical concerns. In the meantime, please subscribe to the In A Nutshell podcast on your usual streaming service and download our future podcast for free. And since food can be the best medicine, don't forget to share us with all your colleagues, friends and family. Until next time.